Hello, whoever's listening. Uh, today, we're c- coming back to the Paleo Protestant podcast. And um, the title of today's episode maybe should be The Elephant in the Room or What's Wrong with Lutherans. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious to talk among ourselves here about um, whether Lutherans have an inferiority complex, whether they are the Rodney Dangerfields of American Protestantism. <laughs> and uh, younger listeners, as if we have any, might not get that, may not get that reference, but that was a famous stand-up comic who may had a shtick out of his um, inferior position, not getting respect. Um, but it does seem that Lutherans are ranked below in appeal, ranked b- well below Anglicans and maybe even below Presbyterians, which is not Presbyterians don't rank real highly these days. I was listening to a podcast over the weekend with uh, Tim Keller and Justin, um, uh, Kevin DeYoung, excuse me, and Justin Taylor was part of it, a gospel coalition one. And, and the young restless reformed, the the new so-called new Calvinists um, are interested in recovering the reformation, but so many of the young Calvinists at gospel coalition remain outside reformed churches. Um, Justin Taylor is in, I'm not sure what kind of church, but I don't think he's Presbyterian. Colin Hansen, who wrote the book, Young Restless Reformed, he remains a Methodist of some kind. Um, Kevin DeYoung and and Tim Keller are are members, ministers in the PCA, but um, not even the new Calvinists have turned out a lot of Presbyterians because Presbyterianism is in some decline, you could argue, from a prestige point of view. Uh, but th- And this reminded me of a little thing I came up with. I think I came up with this, uh, although not all, I mean, not all this, not with the first line. A Baptist is a Methodist who reads. A Presbyterian is a Baptist who drinks. A Lutheran is a Presbyterian who curses. <laughs> And then Anglicans are just above it all. But we don't want to talk about Anglicans today. We want to talk about <laughs> we'll talk about Lutherans. So, Corey, we'll just turn to you as our resident Lutheran and uh, see what your initial thoughts are about the status of Lutherans in America, even though they're so much bigger than any yeah. of the other confessional churches. Yeah, no, that's a good, I mean, the, the way you phrase it early on, I mean, do, do Lutherans have an inferiority complex or, or maybe should they? I mean, I, my, my initial reaction is that we don't, although perhaps we should. You know, th- that is to say, I, I don't think most Lutherans are aware of or bothered by the fact that we don't get the kind of press that, you know, a, a Tim Keller or a John Piper gets. Um but, but on a moment's reflection, you know, given the fact that uh, Lutheranism in America, never mind worldwide, is, is larger than, um, older than, in some respects, you know, Presbyterianism or Anglicanism, um, it, it, it should strike us as a little bit odd. You know, why, why do we have more people, but, but not a bigger footprint? Um, but, but the, re- the reason I suggest that we don't actually have an inferiority complex is, is oddly enough, because the people who most frequently ask this question tend not to be Lutherans. 
Um, so you, Daryl, when, when you did your you know, big book on you know, Calvinism, uh, I remember you giving a talk here and, and you raised the question, you know, why, why isn't Lutheranism better known than Calvinism? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, whom you just mentioned, had a piece uh, a few years back at the Gospel Coalition asking the, the same sort of thing. You know, what, what's up with the Lutherans? Why, why don't we hear more about them? Uh, why don't we see them more in public? Um, some, somebody else uh, in, in the Reformed tradition, uh, Derek Rishamwi? I, I don't actually, I, I, I've read his stuff. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I, I apologize. I think Miles um, does. Is that how you say it's, it? It's Rishmawi. So. Rishmawi. Yeah. Um, ra- raised the same kind of question. And I mean, strangely enough, I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen Lutherans raising that kind of question or, or lamenting that lack of, of publicity. Um, Mark Mark Noel, even earlier, had, had, a, had a famous essay on uh, the, the Lutherans in America kind of lamenting that they didn't have a bigger footprint given the, 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 the riches of the tradition and some of the you know, historic names associated with it from Bach to Kierkegaard uh, on down. Um, so yeah, it, it raises an interesting whole, whole interesting set of questions. Uh, why aren't Lutherans better known, better represented, you know, maybe, maybe more attractive to uh, evangelicals who are, you know, thinking about changing traditions. Um, but, but also the question of why, why haven't Lutherans appeared to be too, bear, too terribly bothered by these questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, since I'll, I'll interject and let Miles come in in a second, but since you've written about Lutheranism in England. Yeah. You did your dissertation, and, and and you brought up my book on Calvinism, and I thank you for, for that. But um, it struck me that Lutheranism was there before Reformed Protestantism in England, and yet Reformed Protestantism, synonymous with Calvinism, took off in England in ways, and it and it's all over the uh, the Thirty Nine Articles, I I think. But we can talk about that another time. Um, and once that happens. You know, the British Empire is a big deal mm, yeah. in modern history. So they wind up exporting Reformed Protestantism, which they could have done with Lutheranism had Lutheranism taken hold in England. So I'm curious if you have reflections about why Lutheranism didn't take hold in the 16th century in England. Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and, uh, it, it's not quite analogous to compare, for example, contemporary England with contemporary America. So when I when I did grad work in the UK, um, and and people would find out that I was Lutheran, I mean the, the reactions to that were really astonishing and revealing. It was it was it was everything from wait Lutherans still exist uh, because the English impression is well that was just kind of prelude to Anglicanism and once Anglican was on the scene you know Lutheranism became redundant uh, to oh yeah Lutherans you're you're kind of like the Mormons right you know a, a distinctly American phenomenon um, wow so, so the, I mean they're they're just wow. there just are very very few Lutherans in the UK. So it's, it's, it's less surprising that they, they don't know Lutheranism, you know, compared to, to the U S where, you know, they're, they're thick on the ground, especially in the Midwest. But yeah, to, to your question, um, I, I think there are a whole host of things going on, uh, both, both theologically 
and sort of historically, culturally. Um, on the kind of history and culture side of things, uh, the, the Marian exiles, I think, are in, in some respects key. So those, those evangelical, Protestant, whatever term we want to put on them, uh, individuals who leave England during the reign of Mary Tudor um, typically settle in, in reformed territories. Yeah. Um, now, some of that might be that they already harbor reformed leanings, uh, but some of it is that they, they weren't too terribly welcomed in, in Lutheran territories huh. by that point, um, which, which hadn't been the case earlier when, when folks like Tyndale uh, and others, you know, head, head to Wittenberg uh, in the reign of Henry VIII. And, and so they, they're shaped by their time in Strasbourg or Geneva or elsewhere, and, and they bring that back with them under Elizabeth, um, which, which, you know, of, of course leads to some problems with Elizabeth, who isn't too terribly keen on uh, any sort of strict reform theology and practice. But, but even before that, there's an interesting episode when Catholic theologians in England uh, under Henry VIII, like Stephen Gardner, um, are kind of pressing English Protestants and suggesting that you can't embrace both justification by grace alone through faith alone and any sort of true presence, forgiveness of sins in the sacrament. So, so, so Catholic theologians are proposing that, that you've, you've got to pick one or the other. Mm. And, and Gardner is doing this pretty clearly because he wants them to maintain a true presence in the sacrament, but to reject their doctrine of justification. Um, and as it turns out, you know, to the extent that they think they really do have to choose, they, they keep justification and do away huh. with a, a kind of robust real presence. So I, I think I think that those two things together explain a, a good chunk of it. Miles, did you want to weigh in at all on the um, historical question well, of yeah. Lutheranism in, in England and beyond? Yeah, and I think so. Corey's given me so much to think about. I kind of I know you're too busy to do this, Corey, but you should write a book, <laughs> uh, which is what we'd say to everybody, which we shouldn't. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is. Uh, the strength of old Lutheranism is actually in the center of Germany, away from port cities. Um, mm. And almost every single major port, at least in Hanseatic Germany, has a lot of Reformed Christians instead of Lutherans. And so the, the actual people, who the Germans who are traveling in the early modern world are going to what, what Corey said, they're going to places that are reformed. So Holland is, is reformed England. Yeah. It's the church of England's Episcopal, but it's, it's, it's Calvinist soteriologically. It has a Calvinist foundation in a way that it doesn't have say a Lutheran foundation. Um, I mean, so throughout at least the, the continental part of Northern Europe, that's who you're interacting with. Uh, Corey mentioned the British empire. I think that's, really telling. I also think some of it is just that Lutheranism is talking to different things than Anglicans or Presbyterians are. 
Lutheranism's energy is about justification. It, you know, the Reformed and Anglicans are kind of downstream from it. And so what we end up doing, I think, is arguing about different things um, and, and things like ecclesiology. Um, and so, right, there is no Lutheran ecclesiology. There is an Episcopal ecclesiology and a Presbyterian <laughs> ecclesiology. Um, and I think, I think that's telling. I think the LCMS actually has its congregations, but there are bishops in communion with the LCMS. Is that right, Corey? Or some of the synods have, or some of the... Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, yeah, uh, Lutheran churches throughout the world that are in fellowship with the LCMS do have an Episcopal polity. Um, and, and in Germany, that with you know, German Lutheranism retained an Episcopal polity um, that, that was lost uh, here in America. Um, and it, it, it caused some consternation very, very early on, just because that had been the tradition that was retained. And yet, from the beginning, there was an insistence that this is this is really you know prudent for the sake of good order and continuity. But but there's nothing sort of essential or necessary about this particular form of church government. And so it, it wasn't um, it wasn't a terribly big deal when American Lutherans moved away from that. Yeah. So oh. I just think those are those are kind of things that end up changing the conversation. And so Lutheranism gets lost in the wash as time gets away from the Reformation because people, Protestants are arguing about different things right. than they have been. I, I would like to return to ecclesiology in a different episode because I actually think knowing what the polity is like within our communions could be instructive even for each of us. Um, <clears throat> so, and part of being confessional Protestant is to be in a communion and bound by the the rules, the government structures of that communion. But just briefly, though, back to the 16th century question, and um, Miles, your point about geography, ports in Central Europe, etc. Frankfurt, though, where I, I don't know my my uh, Northern European geography the way I should, but. That's a, that's a church where Knox goes, for instance, mm. and there's a Reformed church there, and maybe it's a re refugee church as well. But is Frankfurt Lutheran at the time, roughly in the 50s? Is it Reformed? Uh, is it mixed? I, I, honestly, don't, I honestly don't recall. Yeah. Um, but, but, there, but there are periods of transition. So in the, in the first half of the 16th century, um, all of those Hanseatic port cities um, are leaning Lutheran, hmm. um, and they are, uh, you know, ad adopting Lutheran church orders, right. and their merchants are the ones bringing Lutheran literature into uh, London, for example. Hmm. Um, but but yeah, there there is a constant flux, um, and then you get the the, the so-called Second Reformation, where a lot of these locales go reformed. And the transition. And, oh, sorry, Daryl. No, go ahead. Well, I was to say the transitions are, are are really important. So one of the things I remember when I was in in high school and in college, Prussia was presented as a, a Lutheran country. Hmm. Um, and uh, of course, you know, once you actually know the history, it's actually this kind of coercive reformed state megachurch that actually <laughs> su su suppresses Lutheranism. The, the monarch of Prussia wasn't Lutheran until 1840. Huh. That's only because Frederick William III, who was a Calvinist, 
married Queen Louise, who was uh, a Lutheran, and they didn't take communion together. Uh, <laughs> and and both, both her sons were raised Lutheran. And so, right, th- for the vast majority of Prussia's history, it's monarchs or Calvinists. Huh. And so I think that's, that's something that there's transitions going on that we even kind of miss, even, right. in, even, in, right. even in very good histories. So. But Corey, back to the, um, those ports and the literature that's circulating, do you have any sense of how widely, I'm assuming much Lutheran literature is in German? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. It is. Um, a, a lot of it is getting translated, though. And, okay. and there, there are interesting ebbs and flows in the, the thinking of England, for example, in the kinds of literature that gets translated. So, I mean, very early on, you know, Cranmer and Cromwell are sponsoring translations of explicitly doctrinal stuff like like the Augsburg Confession, the mm. apology of the Augsburg Confession. By the end of the 16th century, um, the, 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 the more explicitly doctrinal stuff, confessional stuff, uh, polemical stuff really drops off. And what comes to predominate are things like uh, Lutheran sermons, Lutheran devotional material, which, um, you know, which you can read and, and be edified by even as a Puritan or a conformist Anglican. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a, mm. a kind of safer Lutheranism. Okay, let's get out of the 16th century because we probably lost half our <laughs> listeners right there, uh, um, which brings it down from four to two. But um, but here's my other hunch about this when it comes to contemporary America. Um, America is Anglophilic for the most part, whether, I mean, yep. that's certainly up for grabs mm-hmm. yeah. post-1970 or 80. But um, and despite fighting a war for independence, et cetera, from England, we still use the same language. There's still so many affinities culturally, but also religiously. The, I mean, the, the, the largest Protestant groups or the, the, the groups that comprise the Protest, so-called Protestant establishment are all from Anglo backgrounds, Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, um, Methodists, Congregationalists and Lutherans when they begin to uh, participate in some ecumenical Protestant American Protestant ecumenical endeavors, they're still sort of on the outs. They're still more ethnic by these Anglo American Protestant standards than not. So there's, there's that factor that you look at maps of the United States and you look at ethnic composition of the County by County, it's overwhelmingly German through Mm -hmm. so many parts of america some of those parts pretty not very well populated but still if you look <laughs> at a map for eth- ethnic composition germans rule um so there are plenty of german speaking or people of german background here but then you throw into the mix as well america took the side of england or the uk twice in world wars and there was a lot of hostility to german americans during those wars. Um, and I wonder how much that affects, has affected Lutherans in America, that even to the point of they're not even thinking that they're inferior, inferior because they learn lessons, especially World War I, but also World War II, that keep a low profile, 
keep to ourselves. Yeah. I, is that too simple? Well, I, I, I suspect that we, we Lutherans might like to think that's the case. Um, and, 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 and certainly there, there are some elements of truth here. I mean, so, I mean, not, not only ethnically, but, but linguistically. So, I mean, it was, it was only as a result of the First World War that most American Lutheran congregations made the switch to the English language. Um, And and, and part of that was, you know, pressure of of lawsuits. Uh, Teaching, you know, German in Lutheran schools was considered subversive. Um, So so we made that shift. And I think, yeah, clearly it would be easy to say that up through maybe the 40s, there was a, a kind of insular nature to American Lutheranism that prevented people from you know, giving it a serious look if they, if they weren't German speakers themselves. And maybe you know, a little bit of lingering suspicion, hostility following the Second World War. Um, but I mean, we're, we're coming on a hundred years since then. And I, I don't think any of that applies now. Um, and so I mean, people, people raise the analogy with you know, the, the Dutch reformed. Um, I, I don't know their history. I don't know how long they were still worshiping in, in a foreign language here in America, but there's certainly still an ethnic component the way that there is in Scandinavian or German Lutheranism in America. Um, but, but they've made an impression on the, the American Christian scene that, that, that Lutherans still haven't. Um, I, I don't know if that's down to, you know, the, the panache of certain specific individuals or certain institutions or publishing houses. Yeah. But, but whatever explains it, I mean, I, I think it is the case that, you know, a, a, an ethnic body like the Dutch reformed hasn't had the same popularity problems as ethnic bodies like German or Scandinavian Lutheranism even even after we're all speaking English. But but even there, that popularity, which I think is there, partly you point to publishers and the the presses in Grand Rapids, Baker, Zondervan, Erdman's, and the like, they've been they were so crucial to evangelical yeah. publishing yeah. after World War Two and even to today. Um it's not clear to me that the people signing up to publish books with those publishers were then joining the Christian reform church. No, that's uh, true. That's true. And the other side of that, the way I understand the, the Dutch reformed history is there were affinities between Puritanism and the so-called um, second reformation in the Netherlands. And of course, proximity geographically such that, Protestants in the Netherlands and in England went both ways. And there was a kind of pietism Mm -hmm. that was there from the late uh, 16th century on. And, and as I understand it, Dutch reformed pietists loved the Puritans and vice versa. Um, And, and so that even when you get the 19th century, the secession movements in the Dutch churches are very pietistic and confessional, which is something that's odd for confessional churches. And I think that has a kind of resonance with uh, many Anglo-American Protestants who have the 
the awakenings sort of in, in the mix that there's a, there's an affinity there that just isn't there as much for Lutherans, even though I think it's often based on ignorance more than, um, than actual difference differences in piety. Because I, I suspect, as you were saying about England in the 16th century, Lutheran devotional material was available and, and useful to mm-hmm. people who are of a hotter sort of Protestant. Um, yeah, there is, there is a parallel though. Um, I mean, even that kind of first wave of, of Saxon Lutherans that arrives in the mid 19th century. I mean, we, we think of them and I think rightly as part of the, the quote unquote old Lutheran movement, you know, those resisting, you know, the, the Prussian union. Um, and, and so very confessional theologically, but they, they are also steeped in, you know, in, in a kind of pietism, not, not, not the radical pietism that, that, that we tend to think of. Um, and, and so, you know, contemporary confessional Lutherans, you know, you know badmouth pietism, but, but they have, I think, a, a kind of particular understanding of a particular kind of pietism and don't realize that, that confessionalism and pietism sometimes tracked very closely, you know, even, even in the, the, the kind of Lutherans who, you know, settled here and, and founded what's now the Missouri Synod. Yeah. Well, Miles, how many, how much are Lutherans on the radar at all of, uh, in, in ACNA or among Anglicans, would you say? I, uh, not that, probably not that much. I know that um, the Archbishop and Matt Harrison have met, I think in, uh, I don't know if you would call them ecumenical talks because there's no, I don't think there's a significant move to, to be in full communion or anything like that. So I think, you know, people know maybe who Lutherans are. I think some of it's just geography. Um, ACNA's not very, there's not very many of us in the Midwest um, hmm. and Lutherans are thickest on the ground in the Midwest. So I'm probably more aware of Lutherans than the average ACNA parishioner in uh, the DC suburbs uh, or Virginia. And so I think a lot of it's just geography. I think there's also a question of how much ACNA shares with Lutherans. Um, One of the things, this is kind of something we haven't talked about, but closed communion of course has, has some bearing on, uh, you know, how people interact with different Mm -hmm. communions. Um, ACNA is, is, is very open, um, perhaps to its detriment. And so what you have is essentially uh, there's a tendency to kind of want to welcome in folks from fundamentalist evangelical backgrounds. And the very point that ACNA, I think, um, sells itself with is we're not as strict or dogmatic as maybe your fundamentalist or conservative evangelical background is. And whereas if that same person were to go to a Lutheran parish, you would be told usually not, I know there's, there's, you know, loose Lutherans too, Mm -hmm. but you're just more likely to be told you need to understand this is what we're doing and you can't just waltz in, you know, you can come into an ACNA parish after two weeks and Hmm. take communion. You You can't do that at Lutheran church. No, I think, I think that's right. And I think, I think that's really, that is a significant difference that the, I don't know, the, what do you want to call it? But the, the the barrier to entry, so to speak, is is higher in a confessional Lutheran church. 
And so if, if I'm an evangelical wanting to make a move toward something more confessional theologically or more liturgical, um, you know, I can look at Anglicanism, I can look at Presbyterianism, and I, I, I don't have to deal with the issue of, well, if, if I'm serious about this, I'm going to have to go through, you know, six weeks to six months of catechesis before I can actually present myself at, at the rail for communion. Um, and I'm probably caricaturing here, but, but, but I, can, I can imagine someone saying, you know, if I'm going to do that, if, if I'm going to go through some sort of rigorous catechesis before I can actually receive communion, then, then maybe that's only worth it if I get something like the assurance of papal infallibility. So I, I might as well become Catholic rather than Lutheran. I thought you were going to say Lutheran insurance, that there was some kind of special, <laughs> special deal. Yeah. It, in Presbyterian circles, I mean, for a while there, there was an epithet that went around that um, the way to uh, charge someone in conservative Presbyterian circles of not being a good Presbyterian was to say, you're a Lutheran. Um, and I think we've gotten over that. It had to do a lot with the nature of sanctification mm. and the degree to which good works are um, a part of salvation, how you understand that. Um, but I also think back to the Dutch Reformed experience. Um, I was originally ordained as an elder in the Christian Reformed Church. And my sense there that the older church order among the CRC was that if you're on the road and visiting and, um, and you can't find a reformed church, we'll go to a Lutheran church, mm -hmm. but you, you knew you wouldn't partake of the supper. Chances are. Sure. Um, so there, there, there is that, that barrier, but there was still a regard in the Dutch world for the Lutherans that you could find something that was not evangelical. And, mm -hmm. and Methodistic in the, I mean, Methodist, but also the pietistic, pietistic sense. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I suppose too, you, you could find a kind of confessional Protestantism that, that was a little more low church than, than maybe in, some of the, the Anglican services that, that might on paper share more affinities doctrinally with, with, you know, a, a more explicitly reformed or Presbyterian body. Um, because the, I mean, Luth Lutherans have always been you know, perhaps high church by American standards, but um, you know, the, the, the chanting of the liturgy um, that's, that's on the upswing, hmm. you know, long history on the continent, a uh, brief period in the 20th century where, where it very much dropped out of the picture. Um, so the, the kinds of things that might be off-putting to a Presbyterian um, wouldn't necessarily have been found in, say, mid-20th century right. LCMS congregations, most I of them anyway. I hope they're chanting with masks on. I, I sure yeah. hope. <laughs> so one other thought here about Lutheranism in America and, and uh, sort of Lutheranism and American culture more generally that, that I, I thought of was, and this may be a dated cultural reference too for younger listeners, 
but Garrison Keillor and Prairie mm. Home Companion yeah. made Lutheranism look so attractive in a way. <laughs> right. I mean, just because he talked about these real people and told these funny stories about congregational life. And, and of course, Keillor himself did not grow up um, Lutheran. He grew up Brethren. Yeah. Uh, but he grew up around all these Lutherans in, in Minnesota. Um, I'm curious, Corey, and Miles also what you make of it, but but did, did Lutherans enjoy listening to Keeler Prairie Home Companion because of they they knew they might get a little a little promotion there, a little window at least into the into um the ELCA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I I think so. I mean, some, sometimes we would we would laugh, sometimes we would cringe, but but yeah, th there was a little bit of you know, any publicity is good publicity. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you might, you might remember the Simpsons episode where where Lisa Simpson you know in, invented Lutherans. <laughs> yeah. um, she she saw them in her microscope, and yeah, we we thought oh that's kind of funny, and then we discovered that uh, Matt Matt Groening had had himself grown up Lutheran, and we patted huh. ourselves on the back, and you know tended to ignore the fact that he's not actually Lutheran anymore. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I I think so. I mean that was that that was probably the best advertisement for Lutheranism in, in the second half of the 20th century, you know, even if the kind of Lutheranism represented uh, on the Prairie Home Companion wasn't exactly the Lutheranism that most of us, you know, experienced and promoted. Yeah. I think that um, William H. Macy years ago in an interview uh, was asked about why he took the part in Fargo, I think, um, and he, and he said, I'm just a really normal, nice, boring guy. And, he, and he, he said, I'm just a normal Lutheran type guy. And That's I, right. That's and, right. And, and I think I, I remember I remember hearing that interview and I didn't know very many Lutherans at the time. And so my image of what a Lutheran was is, oh, they're just really nice kind of German Episcopalians. Um <laughs> and so that was my perception. It's just, you know, very a middle American form of what, you know, the Episcopal Church might have been on, in the East Coast. And yet for, for people who are serious about theology, Lutherans come across as meanies, right? They have, well, yeah. So, so this is, I mean, when, when I talk to people about this, you know, Garrison Keillor's Lutherans are Scandinavian Lutherans. Right. And they are really nice, <laughs> um, but you know, LCMS is full of Germans, and and Germans aren't so nice. And <laughs> once you try to take over the world twice, you, you can't even pretend that you know, you, you're the nice the nice folks. Well, I mean, you had the audacity to challenge the, the English, who are already running the world. So, <laughs> what's that all about? I think there's something really unique too about. Um, Daryl, you mentioned the Dutch church. And one of the things I think is, is kind of worth noting is just how long there has been a relationship between Holland and England. Um, you know, they shared a head of state at one point. Right, right. And, um, you know, German culture doesn't really get mainstreamed into any Anglophone society until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, today, by the way, is the 180th anniversary of Victoria marrying Prince Albert. Huh. Um, and so something as simple as a Christmas tree would just have been unheard of in Britain before the 1840s. And it's really so, it's something like a Christmas tree, which is a Lutheran thing. 
that gets mainstreamed in Anglophone society, not until the middle of the 19th century. So just how long it takes the cultures to kind of have any interaction, I think is telling. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So we talked about the, the, the early you know, 16th century Lutheran Anglo connections that, that disappear, I mean, but they, they do, well, they could have come back with the Hanoverian succession. Right. Um, because there you've got a head of state who is you know, German and so technically head of the, the Lutheran church in Germany and the Anglican church in England and you know, whatever's going on in Scotland at the time. But, but he keeps it very in-house. I mean, he's, right. he's got his Lutheran chaplain in the court chapel, but, but makes no attempt to you know, impose or, or even advertise Lutheranism beyond court circles. And does it like uh, George I hated uh, British hymnody at the time? Uh, (laughs) But so it's interesting, his dislikes actually keep him from bringing his Germanness into the court uh, in a a way that say what Albert likes about Britain Mm -hmm. kind of brings his Germanness in. So So is it it fair then to, to, to think that part of Lutheran's isms problem if there's a problem don't want to suggest that there is but percept problem of perception in america is that it feels foreign and it is foreign in some ways to both british and american history it's the most ethnic of the confessional churches in america even though the dutch yes yes the dutch sort of also are adjacent to that Mm. and but there have been better ways of, of um, overcoming those differences with the Dutch. But, it, but Lutherans, you know, maybe going back a lot to the questions of close communion has, has, um, has set itself apart more. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's part of it. So it's, it's more foreign than, you know, the, the kind of reformed Protestantism that's just part of the American tradition, but it's not so foreign that it might be attractive as, you know, exotic mm-hmm. the way that, that the Catholicism or Orthodoxy might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of in the middle, you know, it's, it's, it's a little too uncomfortable if I, if I want to be comfortably American, but it's not exotic enough if I, if I want to explicitly reject you know, American Christianity. And that's putting it crudely, but that, that sort of right. stuck in the middle, I think might, might work against Lutheranism in some ways. Right. And that kind of do- goes back to our original conversation about um, the kind of weird Christianity that may be attractive, but M- Miles to close this out, it doesn't have to be closing it out, but we are getting close on time. Did, did it growing up in the South, I mean, there are Lutherans in North Carolina. Yeah, and- mainly Haitian L- Lutherans. Okay. Um, and so Elka has a big imprint in central North Carolina. Huh. But I, again, I kind of, my assumption, I go back to the William H. Macy quote, Lutherans I always thought were just, I mean, kind of German Episcopalian. I was <laughs> Presbyterian. And so, well, they kind of do some of the Episcopal stuff. So they're kind of just to the German analog to... English, uh, you know, Episcopalian. So the actual, 
that there was a theological aspect to Lutheranism just never would have occurred uh, to me. Um, you know, I knew I knew Lutherans, but they were mainly mainline Lutheran. Nice, pe- you know, nice people. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. but that it just you know the LCMS in particular is a Midwest. It's it's its heart is in the Midwest. Um, yes. Yeah. So I you know I I'm going off of that. I'd I'd say two more things. One is that because the the ELCA um, and some of the the denominations that fed into that when it it formed, because that has always been bigger than the LCMS and and the smaller synods like Wells and the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, when, when a lot of people are familiar with Lutheranism, they're familiar with that sort of mainline liberal Lutheranism. And, and for that reason, I suspect, wouldn't be interested in digging further into Lutheranism. Well, if Lutheranism is basically Episcopalianism, Presbyterian Church USA, theologically, um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass. But, but then the other thing, kind of going back to publishing houses and that sort of thing, um, I, I, I do think that, that there just hasn't been an, an individual sort of equivalent of someone like Piper or Keller. Right. I mean, I, I, I suspect that if there were an individual you know, who published a book or had a you know, popular you know, blog or podcast, um, that that would make a difference. And, I, and I, I'm not sure that anyone's you know, tried to, to fill that role. Um, and I'm not sure if they should, but you know, a particular individual, a particular book, can open a lot of eyes, raise a lot of questions. Well, Gene Veith seems to have, or Ed Veith, yeah, have crossed over more so. Yeah, he's he's probably the the best known individual who has, um, you know published outside of, of Lutheran circles. Um, so yeah, if, if, if an American evangelical knows a confessional Lutheran, it's probably someone like Veith. Yeah. Well, I just, just to round this out then I, I grew up in Levittown, Pennsylvania, the armpit of Bucks County, Pennsylvania <laughs> and Bucks County is a extraordinarily beautiful County, but Levittown's on the industrial end of it toward the city of Philadelphia. Um, and in the the development that I grew up in, just next to it, there was Stony Brook and then there was Greenbrook. And the, the designers of Levittown set aside parcels of land for churches. Mm. And um, so just down the road for me, about a half mile, was Hope Lutheran, which was an LCMS congregation. And um, one of my classmates, a girl by the name of Cheryl Hartman, I hope I'm not uh, saying anything untoward by revealing that. <laughs> and because Hart was so close to Hartman, we wound up being, you know, in homeroom together or whatnot. And I sort of knew she was a Lutheran and I knew that church was a Lutheran. And it, it seemed more familiar in a way than Methodists because that was a church farther away, but I had no idea about mm. it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even there though, the LCMS was planning a church, probably back in the fifties in Levittown PA. I have no idea how big it was. I mean, it wasn't a big facility, but you know, 
they may have added on since then. So they were there. They were in suburban Philadelphia trying to to reach um, who whoever whomever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that on that somewhat um, whimsical <laughs> note, let's bring this to a close. But we will return to this subject and ask the question: Why do so many evangelicals become Anglican? Um, in our in a second of our maybe three part series here on <laughs> on rating our different communions. All right. Thanks for being around, listeners, thanks, and thanks you guys. And we'll do it again soon. Take care.